This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Regular listeners of Common Threads will recall that last year we had a wonderful conversation with Salima Abdul-Ghaffar, who edited the book Living Islam Out Loud. The volume included several essays from American Muslim women on the challenges and rewards of practicing Islam in this country. One of the contributors was Asra Nomani, an Indian-American from Virginia who shared something of her spiritual path. Well, Asra has a new book out called Standing Alone in Mecca. It is the account of her pilgrimage to the Holy City, as well as her jihad, her struggle against the medieval sexism that is often practiced in many American mosques. A little bit about Asra. She was born in Mumbai, India, into a modern but conservative Muslim family. She came to the U.S. at the age of four and was raised in the foothills of West Virginia. She is the author of the critically acclaimed Standing Alone, as we're talking about today. She's written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Time Magazine on Islam. She covered the war in Afghanistan for Salon, and her work has appeared in such magazines as Cosmo, Sports Illustrated for Women, and people. Asra is the founder and creator of Muslim Women's Freedom Tour. On March 1st, 2005, she posted on the doors of her mosque in Morganstown 99 precepts for opening hearts, minds, and doors in the Muslim world. She was the lead organizer of the women-led Muslim prayer in New York City on March 18th of last year. She was the vis visiting scholar at the Center for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University. She's a volunteer at the Rape and Domestic Violence uh, Shelter in Morganstown, West Virginia. She is committed to seeing hearts, minds, and doors open in the Muslim world as part of a wider vision for world peace. I found out about her book through the January issue of Mother Jones, an excellent article about her there, and she joins us today. Asra, welcome to Common Threads. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to speak to you and your great listeners. Sure. One of the first things I noticed about your book is that uh, the relationship you have with Islam is certainly a complicated one. Would you agree? Definitely, and I think it's reflective of the complicated relationship that most of the world has got with Islam. Yes. Um, I have interviewed people, uh, I've interviewed secular Muslims, uh, people who were born into Muslim culture, who have written essays and books against Islam. I have also talked to people who were Christian, who write books and essays and magazine articles opposing Islam. One could read your book and almost expect at some point that you're going to announce, and by the way, at this point, I became a Christian, right. <laughs> or I became uh, a secular Muslim, be because you really e uh, expose the warts of Islam as it is practiced today. On the other hand, I think I have not read 
a book that quotes the Quran as well as the other supportive literature of Islam, as well as you showing, indicating that Islam is not necessarily what is being practiced today. Is, is, is that a fair assessment, would you say? Absolutely. I mean, I firmly believe in the moral compass that Islam provided the world and provides me. I just am convinced and um, am very clear about the fact that it is Muslims that have betrayed Islam. And so for me, it would be like condemning Christianity, you know, during the height of the Inquisition, if you were to um, follow through on the analogy that so many people are are, you know, condemning Islam with today. But um, but I believe in the faith, and that's why I believe very firmly that we have to reform the way it's practiced in the world today and bring it more in line with the original teachings. Right. A, a lot of people <clears throat> would say you're, you're trying to reform Islam, but actually you're, you're trying, you're kind of a fundamentalist. You want to go back. Yeah, it appears. I, you know, all of my inspiration comes from the 7th century and the original foundation of, of the faith. It was a progressive religion for that time. We just ended up um, going backwards at, right after the death of the Prophet Muhammad so that we're today, I would argue, in this place of ignorance that the most of the Arab world was found, had found itself when Islam was brought to this world. I would uh, say that your book tells three stories. It's the story of your Hajj, your, your pilgrimage to Mecca. It's the story of your conflicts with your local Muslim community. And it is the story, it is your personal story, especially uh, uh, concerning your son and the relationship which, which created your son. Would you say that? That, that's also fair that there, there are three stories that kind of intertwine with, e with yeah, one another? I, I think that's a great way of putting it. I mean, and I think, you know, for me, that um, these three threads are very much the sort of layers that so many of us have in our lives where there's something very intimate that's going on in our lives that is um, propelling us to change or transformation. And that intimate uh, experience is very much connected to a struggle within our community, you know, in our intimate community outside of ourselves. And then the, the final extension of it is a larger global struggle. And, um, and, and that's how I feel like each of our personal stories is so important to wider transformation, because if we can't take on the demons in our own lives and in our communities. We can't take them on in the world. Well, let's talk about the Hajj, first of all. Give us a little bit of background. Well, uh, I was a journalist for the Wall Street Journal for 15 years, and I always thought that it would be remarkable to do a big page one story on the big business of the pilgrimage to Mecca. You know, we've got Hilton's, we've got five-star packages, we've got immense money spent on this spiritual um, practice. But then what happened for me is um, this concept of the pilgrimage became very personal. Um, I had been in Karachi, Pakistan, reporting for Salon after 9-11, and I was plotting and planning my pilgrimage to Mecca. I was thought that I could just 
pull it off like I've pulled off, you know, so many adventures in the world. I could have jetted into Bangkok, gone on a motorcycle through India. Surely I could just get on a plane and go on the pilgrimage to Mecca. But I ended up facing what I call Wahhabi red tape in the book. You know, I had to go with my dad. I had to have my chaperone. And finally, I was able to pull it all off. And I went with my family and uh, my newborn son. I was expecting to really have a terrible time, I'll be honest. I was not at all uh, kindred with the ideology of Islam in Saudi Arabia. I resented a lot of the way that the religion was practiced, not allowing women to drive and all the other restrictions. But what I tried so hard to do was detach myself and transcend this human dimension of the pilgrimage and really go to the roots of this um, of this spiritual act and on the pilgrimage then I really um, went back into history and and the pilgrimage allows you to do that because you're basically walking in the footsteps of the the people from which Islam was created and the most important moment for me was when I went, like with all the other pilgrims, on following the footsteps of Hajar, or Hagar, as she's known in the West. And um, and I really felt the power of this woman who had been left in Mecca thousands of years ago, alone with her son. Abraham had walked away, and she had to surrender to her faith and her hope and her own personal strength to persevere. And so we run in the footsteps of Hajar as she had run when she was desperately looking for water. And it was at that moment that I came to a place of real clarity about how far we had gone away from that original strength, because the laws of Saudi Arabia don't allow women to run now. They threaten you if you run because they say that it's too titillating and too um, sexual for a woman to be in such motion. And so all of these man-made rules have projected themselves on our modern day and taken us further away from that original place of power. And, um, you know, I've always been a runner all my life, and I took it very personally, and I realized that it is a very personal intrusion that this ideology of um of sexism and and dogmatism has made on our lives are men able to run yes men are encouraged to run so what i saw was my father and my nephew who was 10 at the time uh running and i was with my mother and my niece who was 12 at the time and we had to walk You know, maybe we could, if we dared, walk a little bit briskly. But, you know, just in that that, um, moment, the symbolism of what had happened became so clear to me. I mean, men were able to fully express themselves, fully, you know, assert their power in this world, and we were held back. And this is when I realized that, you know, we're held back if we allow ourselves to be held back, right? I, I... there on the marble floor of Saudi Arabia, I knew that I faced punishment, possible jail if I was like in complete defiance of these rules. It wasn't a safe place for me 
to assert my newfound you know epiphany but um but I knew back here home in america i could I could um do something mm. boy, it seems the only way running would be titillating is uh <laughs> You know, if if you're recording it on film in slow motion like they did on Baywatch. You right. Know. And you have the bikini <laughs> yeah, and you right. have the surf and, you know, the, the... Shaking of the wet hair. Yeah. The whole... I mean, they've watched a little bit too much of Bo Derek, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a little un- un- unreal. And yet that is what is defining our community. You know, fear and and and... And demonization of the woman's body. You, you were always, you were deathly afraid your mother's hair would, apparently she wasn't taking care of her hair enough. Oh, was, my mother is just amazing. So, you know, she's a woman who had to cover fully until she was married to my father and her new mother-in-law literally took the burqa that she had grown up wearing off of her head at, at the railway station in Hyderabad, India, when she had arrived in her new um, home. But my mother, you know, came to America, started a business, got her college degree, and did not cover her hair, believing very clearly this um, interpretation that is not widespread in our community, but is definitely legitimate that a woman is not required to cover her hair. So you know the law in Saudi Arabia is completely opposite. You expose a strand of hair and you're a criminal. And so my mom, though, you know, was not hostage to their ideas, and so she would literally like take her scarf off in the middle of the airport when we landed to adjust it. And I was just so afraid that the Sharia police were about to swoop down on us and, and haul her off to prison. Uh, the the profile that you give of your mother uh, indicates she wasn't all that bent on making Hajj. Am I correct? That w- your father was very excited to do this. My father was crying, you know, in um, emotional um, just... Uh, release over just how moving this experience was to him. My mom, she was, she literally said, look, I'll just stay in the hotel room and take care of your son. And she was happy to watch Saudi soap operas and <laughs> CNN if th- th- there was no other choice. Um, you know, cause, because like so many women, she's been shut out of organized religion. Um, she was told from the earliest days a woman's place is not in the mosque. My father was the founder of our mosque in Morgantown, West Virginia. He was a leader. He was always running out to go to study sessions. And my mom was the one washing the dishes after dinner and teaching us the Quran, teaching us how to pray, but not being any part of the organized community. And so... After 60 years, you know, she basically figured out that there wasn't a place for her in the faith as it's practiced today. Then, you know, of course, her young, you know, foolish daughter comes along and says, Mom, that's not right. You know, we've got to change things. And what is so beautiful about my mom is that she stood by me and never discouraged me. And your father has stood by you as well, am I correct? My father has been amazing. You know, he is a man who 
tried to change things from within, and he couldn't. I mean, he had a vision. He had a vision for the kind of Muslim community Islam had in the 7th century, where women and children were active participants and inspired members of the new Muslim community. And he tried. I mean, he got the first women elected to position at the local Muslim Students Association when he was the uh, faculty advisor. He made sure that there was always a space for women in the mosque, even though they were all, it was always second class. And yet, you know, when I came around and said, Dad, you know, this isn't good enough, he accepted that. You know, he didn't have ego in it. And he said, you're right. And we have failed our younger generation. And he has given up and lost status, you know, friendship, and um, and done it without any regret. Now, one thing, when I read your book, and, and tell me if I misunderstood something, you say that there is no place for women in mosques, I thought all mosques welcomed women as long as they were willing to stand or sit or kneel in the back or some other place. But but are there some mosques that don't allow women, period? Oh, there are definitely mosques that don't allow women at all. I mean, we have a mosque in Boulder, Colorado, here in America, where I, from which I got a email of a woman and you know they argue it's always logistics right there's like there's not enough space for the women and so they literally have you know rented some room in a um apartment blocks away from the mosque for the women to congregate basically when i um argue that there isn't a place for women in the mosque i know yes there are mosques where you have separate areas and you have a side door maybe you can even come in through the front door we are not welcome in so many of these communities. I mean, the ideology of so many men is that there is not a place for women in the mosque. And so even if there is physically a quarter, you know, or a corner that's been given to the women, we're not made to feel welcome. And there are a lot of mosques that, in fact, you know, um, ban women from being leaders on the boards and what we're facing then is basically these traditions that have become layered on to our faith and so while there might be you know a um, little you know sister's corner you'll see that the enthusiasm and the ability to actually participate in the full community's events is very limited if you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Asra Nomani, and she is the author of Standing Alone in Mecca. Uh, Asra, how were you able to learn as much as you have learned about the, if we can call it the original Islam, the, the more inclusive Islam? Was it was it self study? Did you come across an imam who was uh, educated in this? Well, you know, like with all pursuits of knowledge, you have to be inspired. And I um, was inspired after September 11th to really understand very clearly what the, um, what Islam was about. 
And so for me, I attacked this like I have any project that I've had in journalism with the same um, vigor at finding primary research and doing primary interviews. And so to me, this was like one of the biggest investigative journalism projects I've ever had. I wanted to find out the truth of Islam, and I didn't want to just hear what the you know, imams were reading off of PR talking points, because that's sadly what I believe so much of the faith is being expressed by today. You know, they want to um, put out a certain type of Islam, and so then there's certain talking points about what is allowed and what's not allowed. And so what I did was, you know, for example, when I went to the mosque here in Morgantown and I was told, Sister, take the back door, this was shocking to me because I had gone in through every door that my father had gone through in the mosque in Mecca. I was never told to come in this way or that way, and I had known a different reality than what was being practiced at so many mosques. So when the elder here told me, take the back door, I wondered to myself, is this true? Do women have to take the back door in our mosques? And then he told me, you'd sit in this corner, and I had to sit in the balcony and face this wall, and I thought to myself, is this true? And so what I did was I, what I've done whenever I've been curious about anything, I picked up the phone, and I started calling all of the scholars that I could find here in America, and Ingrid Matson, you know, a vice president of the Islamic Society of North America, one of our mainstream Muslim organizations, um, acknowledged to me that the mosque has become a men's club. Amina Wadud, a scholar at Virginia Commonwealth University, asserted to me very clearly that no woman has to go in through a back door, no woman has to pray in a separate area. And all of these great scholars uh, liberated me from you know, just the ignorance in which I uh, had been living, accepting what people were putting out as Islam. Give us some some surahs from the Quran that would support what you're talking about in terms of uh, women being on an equal par with men in the religion. Well, what's so beautiful is that you know, the Quran does not say that a woman has to take and take a back door, that the Quran does not say a woman has to sit behind the man. I mean, the Quran has as a model of leadership one person, and that person was a woman, the Queen of Sheba. I mean, it is remarkable that we ended up with this kind of translations and interpretations that impose all of these rules on us. And to me, the um, greatest testimony to um, the idea that inequity is not uh, acceptable in Islam is a verse from Al-Nisa, which is a translation which means the women, interestingly enough. And so chapter 4, verse 135 says, O ye who believe, stand out firmly for justice as witnesses to God, even if it may be against yourselves or your parents or your kin. So to me, this is a declaration of equity, human rights, and justice. You know, it, what it is specifically saying is that we must stand out firmly for justice. And so to me, that means justice for women, 
justice for the poor, justice for, you know, um, for those who are of a different ethnicity or a different race. And, and Islam, to me, is very firmly against sexism and racism and dogmatism. And so this is the verse that has inspired me through a lot of my actions, because, as you know, if you stand up within any community, you're dogged out and you're told immediately to shut up and stop shaming the community. You know, it's an honor is such a big deal in our Muslim world. And so um, we're oftentimes told, you know, don't air the dirty laundry. And, um, and where it says here that you must stand up even if it is against your own kin, I know that that means that we cannot allow injustice within our own community. You also mentioned in the book, and it would take me a couple of seconds to find it right now, that a, a lot of the rules and regulations which are sexist, which uh, oppose any form of inclusion, come from a particular person, and and you question uh, his his validity, you question his position. Who am I speaking of? Yeah, he was considered a companion of the prophet and his name was abu herrera yes that's right and i got to know him quite well you know through the centuries that divide us because he is like a ghost figure in my mosque and in so many other mosques where his um at his sayings that he attributes to the Prophet Muhammad are the ones most often used to keep women in their place. Uh, one of the most quoted that he is attributed to have, um, you know, heard from the Prophet Muhammad is one that says that the best places for men is the front rows of the mosque and the best places for women is the back rows of the mosque. When I went in through the front door of my mosque, and prayed in the main hall. The men surrounded me and screamed at me and yelled at me and threatened to shut down the mosque. When I refused to leave, they begrudgingly accepted my presence, but then they preached from the pulpit these kind of sayings to always remind me that I had to stay in my place. They literally wanted us, uh, my mother and myself, to pray with our backs against the wall in literal submission to this alleged you know, saying of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, so many of the laws in Islam are defined by these um, elements called the Hadith, the Sunnah. Um, they're the traditions and sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. And so they're the second element of establishing Islamic law in many societies. And so Abu Huraira is now understood very, um, very, you know, commonly among many scholars as a misogynist and sexist man who was repeating sayings that he, you know, quoted to the Prophet Muhammad that others challenged as being completely out of uh, touch with what the Prophet practiced in his life. Asra, I'm going to have to stop you right there because we're out of time, but I want to pick this conversation up next week. What you're saying, I'm sure, is is quite fascinating to Great, folks thank listening. You. Uh, but our guest today has been Asra Nomani here on Common Threads, and she will be with us next week. The book is Standing Alone in Mecca. You can also find out more information on this book and Asra. 
from uh, an article in the January issue of Mother Jones and also her website, www.asranomani.com. I'm Fred Stella. You're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. Please join us again next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. The concept of pilgrimage is one that is shared by most religions. For someone who has never experienced this sacred walk, it's difficult to express how life-changing such a sacrifice can be. Well, for author Asra Nomani, her journey was indeed an epiphany. In her latest book, Standing Alone in Mecca, Asra details what being in Islam's holiest city did for helping her chart her life's course. The book is a wonderful insider's look into Muslim practice, its blessings and its obstacles, especially for women. Last week we started our conversation with Asra, and she's kindly consented to join us again as we delve further into her efforts to bring the religion she loves into the 21st century. A little bit about Asra. She was born in India into a modern but conservative Muslim family. She came to the States at the age of four and was raised in the foothills of West Virginia. And she's the author of the critically acclaimed book that we're talking about today, Standing Alone in Mecca, An American Women's Struggle for the Soul of Islam. She's a former Wall Street Journal correspondent. Nomani has also written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine on Islam. She's covered the war in Afghanistan for Salon, and her work has appeared in such magazines as Cosmo, Sports Illustrated for Women, and People. She's also the author of Tantrika, Traveling the Road of Divine Love, and currently lives in Morganstown, West Virginia, with her son, Shibley. Uh, and uh, there, she's become a writer-activist dedicated to reclaiming women's rights and the principles of tolerance in the Muslim world. Asra, welcome once again to Common Threads. Oh, thank you so much. Last week, unfortunately, I had to cut you off because we were talking about something I think is quite important. Uh, the person whom you believe is responsible for many of the sexist elements in what is practiced in the Muslim world today. Let's pick that, that up a little bit. Once again, his name is Abu Herrera. Herrera. And what I argue in my book is that 
all religions have an Abu Herrera, and all communities have an Abu Herrera. You know, the enforcer, the man, or sometimes, oftentimes, also the woman who wants to just keep women in their place, and they use religion as their leverage. And so, you know, this has been the um, challenge of women in the Jewish and Christian faiths for centuries, having to face, you know, men who would argue that different interpretations and um, and sayings said that, you know, women had to keep their role as limited as possible, and they, even in the Jewish and Christian faith, they had to face, you know, the same requirement that to be a good woman, you covered your hair, you knew your place, and you stayed quiet. And so this is where we're at as women within Islam. I mean, we're now, as especially American Muslim women, empowered and skilled in being able to challenge these forces in a really pow- in a really powerful way. But it seems like right now what you're what you're talking about is sort of held hostage in the academic, the intellectual circles, but it has not filtered down very well into the mosques today around the world. Am, am I correct? Right. I mean, you know, there's great inspired work happening in academia and it's now being used by activists such as myself as theological and intellectual um, you know weaponry in this war of ideas but at the end of the day we don't see it as a you know sparking great change within our communities I love the you know kind of work that you do that this interfaith work but I also know that um, until we can really, uh, you know, change our community from within, it really puts folks that are doing interfaith work in a really difficult position because you're really interconnected a lot of times with mosques that keep women in their place, that have their rules, that maybe have an open house one day a week when everybody can walk freely through the mosque, but try to go in any other Friday or any other day of the week, and it's largely the more conservative, narrow-minded people who want to perpetuate all these old rules. And so that's the struggle that we're in right now. And, you know, I I know that it's incumbent upon us to create a new reality that allows for new types of mosques and, and, and transforms the mosques that we have. You know, to me, mosques are a very central part of this battle because they are the representation of our religion institutionally in this world. And so if our mosques can't be open to all, including women, then that means that Islam is being expressed in a way that's very closed in the world. I'm just curious, does your mosque in Morgantown, does it allow visitors, non-Muslim visitors? Well... Two years after the opening of the mosque, we had the first open house, and it was, you know, a beautiful day, like so many other open houses are made to be. Everybody had cleaned and scrubbed the mosque. It looked prettier than it had ever been for just, you know, ordinary practice. The um, men who I knew and had heard preaching such uh, intolerant words uh, to people of other faiths held out their hands that day and welcomed women and men of other faiths. And so it was a great, 
you know, a publicity stunt, and it was a great moment. I mean, I believe that it was at least a step forward, even if it wasn't followed through on every day of the week. People are mostly afraid to come into the mosque as I survey them around this community and other communities. I just talked to a woman in New York City, and she lives just a few blocks away from the big mosque on the Upper East Side. And she's very curious. She's a journalist. She's completely gone places where she's um, felt fear before. But she doesn't walk through the door of the mosque because she's afraid. She's afraid of doing the wrong thing. She's afraid of offending. And that's sadly, you know, how um, we've defined so much of our community that, in fact, you come into our space and you will do the wrong thing or you might do the wrong thing. You might, you know, go in the wrong area. You, you've got a strand of hair showing. Oh, you're showing all your hair. I mean, there's all of these different elements that keep people out of our mosques. You know, do, do I take my shoes off here or do I take them off there? And trust me, it's no different for a Muslim like myself. I was um, Googling, you know, the mosques in your local area before we started talking in this interview, and I just was trying to get a feel for whether I would even feel comfortable going into those mosques. I looked at the images to see if there were any faces of women, and, you know, they, there weren't in the main prayer halls. I couldn't find them in a couple of the mosques in the Michigan area. Um, and, and so... This is the fear factor that we've got to overcome. What I call a lot of these people in mosques who kind of keep everyone, you know, towing the line are the enforcers. I mean, they're the ones that are there to keep everybody in line. And you've got nail polish on your fingers or your, your, uh, you know, the contour of your butt is showing and they throw an overcoat on you. I mean, it just gets ludicrous and, and hysterical, make a great reality TV show, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's also very sad because I really, you know, have come to recognize that I would feel comfortable walking into just about any church, even though I know that a lot of churches might preach very, um, you know, similarly dogmatic points of view, but I pretty much think I can come off the street and walk in, at least, and have a conversation, but I don't I know that people don't feel the same way about our mosques. Just to be fair, I do know that there is one mosque. I have no idea. I've never been to their website, but I know people who are connected with uh, with at least one mosque here. Uh, and to the very best of my knowledge, they certainly allow women in. I don't know where the women have to have to stay. Yeah, I mean, I two out of three mosques in America are the are the ones that you know have women pray in a separate area. One out of three does not. What I'm saying is definitely diverse. You know, there's definitely a diverse um, uh, sort of layout for women's participation. But there's, you know, I, I've always, as a journalist, um, shied away from making generalizations or, um, or blanket statements. But, you know, I have to say that even with the exceptions, where we have women sitting on board, and we have a systemic problem, and that's what I'm basically, um, uh, you know, find most troubling. Do you do you see anything different in the uh, in the European Muslim world, such as the Bosnian Muslim world, or is well, it pretty much the same? 
I don't know um, the Bosnian Muslim world. I know that, you know, when I went to the mosque in Paris, I was shepherded in through a door that was designated the women's door, and I was not allowed to go into the main area where I could actually see the imam. At the end, when I was trying to leave, the women were, uh, you know, basically held back, and they, we were not allowed to leave because we were, t you know, told that the men had to leave first, and they were given the women's door. And so that's the kind of experience that I've um, had over and over again throughout the world where our priority is second to the men's. But the the ethnic makeup of the people in this uh, Parisian mosque was what, primarily Arab? Yes, I mean, that one it would be mostly a lot of the Arab immigrants that had come. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, though this phenomena is not... Um, I think defined only by any specific ethnicity. Um, I mean, in South Asia, I couldn't go into my village mosque. I couldn't go into the great mosques of the big cities. I only went and was allowed to go into one, this very empty historical mosque on the banks of the Ganges River in you know the Hindu spiritual center. And um, every other one I was refused. When I went to Pakistan, I would literally um, watch my uncle leave in the, for the early morning dawn prayer, and he would lock the door from the outside, so my grandmother and my aunt and I were locked inside while he went out to pray. And then he would return, unlock the door, We'd have a smoothie that he'd make for breakfast and then go out for a walk in the park, and I would walk by the mosque that I wasn't allowed to enter. And so that is the larger um, you know, phenomena that I'm trying to challenge, arguing basically that if we as women can't have a fully realized role in our uh, places of worship, then you are denying half the resource of our community. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU. The program is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Asra Nomani. She's the author of Standing Alone in Mecca. Last week, I started the show by mentioning that this book, Standing Alone in Mecca, is, is about three, has three threads. Your, your Hajj, your, your pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, your fight for women's rights within the religion of Islam, and also the story of your son. We haven't talked about that yet, so so let's do it. You have one challenge, it seems, a very, very big one as well. Here you are uh, attempting to reform Islam, to, to uh, right centuries of wrongs, and you had a child out of wedlock. That is really been difficult, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was difficult first in my own soul, and then it was difficult and has been difficult in my community. What's been amazing for me is that in tackling that difficulty in my soul, in tackling, you know, the sense of illegitimacy and shame that came with, you know, recognizing that I was now pregnant with a child without a wedding ring on my finger, I um, only became stronger, 
and um, that strength is really comes from uh, my parents' love. I mean, the love with which they embraced me when I came back home from Pakistan. You know, eight months pregnant, um, and they um, were Muslims who believed that premarital sex is unacceptable and immoral, but they knew, too, that life could not be condemned and that ultimately a woman could not be condemned and criminalized and punished in to, um, you know, to ma- make uh, our society a good one, that in fact the opposite had to happen, that we had to support and be kind and loving to those who feel very much alone. And so when I came back to Morgantown, to the embrace of my parents, I came back a very um, shattered and broken woman. I had fallen in love with a Muslim man when I was in Pakistan, and he had left um, as soon as he had found out that I was pregnant, even though before that he had declared marriage. And this is the age-old story, right? Of um, of lost love and and um, and all the rest. But what I ended up recognizing when my son emerged in my arms and in my hands was that he was the divine. I mean, he was the closest that I was going to get to the divine, and his perfection and beauty and and sheer joy at, at living um, gave me the strongest lesson I could have ever had in courage, Um, you know, because he was just with his birth uh, acting courageously. Uh, He had chosen a mother from the heavens who was going to be branded by many people in her community as a uh, sinner and um, and the, you know, agent of the devil, but um, he chose me and and I knew at that moment that I had to offer him and give to him the best of myself. And so it was then that I turned my back on the shame, you know, and I said I would not be defined by it. And now what I have also come to recognize is that um, in Islam, I mean, our teachings are of benevolence and mercy and kindness and forgiveness. And so that is the model that um, I feel like we can contribute so much more to the world. Even starting in my own life, I mean, I had to show myself forgiveness and compassion of the kind that, that the great prophets of the world have spoken about. You know, from the Christian faith, I'm, I am the woman at the well, you know, that nobody would talk to but Jesus. And um, so often women are the ones, because of our bodies and because of our sexuality, you know, ostracized and demonized, and um, and and I know that I was given this test because that is our sexuality is the place that um, our imprisonment oftentimes begins. And it's easy fodder for your detractors because, from what I gather, you're trying to indicate that Islam should change, and they can say, "Aha, yeah, you want to change so that uh, you know women can." have all the babies they want without husbands, and then our, our whole moral civilization will go down the toilet. Yeah, no, I know that what I'm talking about um, scares them, because they are so afraid that we're going to, 
you know, have social chaos and we're going to become westernized and look at all of the, you know, unwed mothers in American society. I mean, this is um, fear, I know, that defines so much of their opposition to any kind of change. But I don't believe that, you know, we have to abandon ethics or values. I mean, we have to just be honest about reality. And social realities include premarital sex and unwed motherhood and divorce. I mean, there was a time when we couldn't accept divorce in our Muslim community, even though women are completely guaranteed the right to divorce a man if they so desire. And so these have all become taboos, and yet they are social realities that, unchecked in a healthy way, only express themselves in very, very painful and destructive ways. And what I mean by that is simply that, you know, in our Muslim communities, like in Pakistan, there are women who abandon their children, throw them into dumpsters because they are, you know, not fitting the image of the good mother. And this is a reality that we have to stop through kindness and compassion, you know, offering alternatives, offering education, um, teaching social responsibility, uh, sexual education, all of the rest that, you know, allows for a healthy and, uh, and mature handling of these kinds of social issues. But shame and, and dishonor, to me, are not deterrents. They're, they're just simply destructive. Uh, when it comes to situations such as, such as uh, your own, men have it pretty good oh, yeah. in, in, in a lot of Muslim societies. What is a temporary marriage? Does it have any religious or legal standing? Well, the temporary marriage is a very fascinating phenomena. It came out of the 7th century when the Prophet Muhammad lived, and there was, you know, these issues where men would go off to war and they would have sexual urges and, and, and desires. And so these temporary marriages were allowed as a respite, right? Um, now, I uh, would you'd find an argument from me about just the logic of that, but um, obviously, you, but this is, it's it's a controversy there in itself, but what's happened now is that that phenomena has spilled over into our 21st century as, I firmly believe, a basic uh, excuse to have, it's like you, you um, use religion to get laid. Um, I see it happening in college campuses where we have here, even here in Morgantown, um, you know, students coming in from overseas and they find American girlfriends that they want to have sex with and so they argue that they can get a temporary marriage and um, and it becomes a way to basically have sex without any kind of uh, moral judgment. Uh, it was used as the means by which this um, this uh, famous, in, in this famous case in Egypt where an actor had a temporary marriage allegedly with a woman. She became pregnant. He uh, never, you know, recognized the child. In Egypt, the implications, as in many Muslim countries, are significant 
where children do not get their IDs without a father's name. And so um, it's a terrible injustice into which children are then born. The woman heroically went to court and argued that they had this temporary marriage. The man denied it. He refused a DNA test, and she lost her case. And so these, this is, you know, is a just irresponsible way of dealing with issues of sexuality. And, um, and again, religion is used as the cover. Is, is there any ceremony that goes along with a temporary marriage, or is it just the guy saying, okay, we're temporarily married? Yeah, I um, it's one of my goals is to figure out the actual logistics of it, but as I understand it, it ha- perhaps has an officiator, but again, the officiator it doesn't have to be anybody other than a Muslim oftentimes, and there's supposed to be a document. So in the case of the mom in Egypt, I mean, she was... Um, she lost her case because she failed to provide the document, which she alleged the boyfriend had had kept custody of. Um, but you know, no, I mean, it's it's not like you end up having to um, go to the justice of the peace and get signed documents, and everything is in the record books. And so, in fact, in America, you know, some great Muslim women activists have tried to enforce a rule in mosques where you have marriage registries because not only is the temporary marriage but also the phenomenon of you know allowing polygamous marriages um is that's another uh, way in which people try use as a cover to have more sex and so this is this is you know all um unregulated and again the greatest challenge we have is that in mosques that are men's clubs, this kind of behavior just is like a frat house stuff. You know, you just kind of like wink, wink, nod, nod, and it, it, people get away with it. And who suffers is women and families then. We only have uh, about three minutes left. Very quickly, does Islam officially condone polygamy? Well, the yeah, Quran clearly states that, you know, at that time they allowed marriages up to four wives, and there's definitely a preference for one wife in the literal readings of the Quran. So now the progressive interpretations and the one that I subscribe to is that that was fine for that time in the 7th century, but just as the Quran only allows women, you know, less inheritance than men and other issues of inequity, we have to fast forward to the 21st century and bring these interpretations in line with our social realities, thus banning polygamy, as is the case in some Muslim communities, but not all of them. You also, in the book, enumerate uh, several women's rights Yeah. Uh, in, in the mosque and in the bedroom. Yes. And unfortunately, how much time do we have left? We've got two minutes left. C- could you summarize in, in just two minutes what, what the goals of these tenets are? Well, I was put on trial at my mosque to be banished. And in my defense, I posted on the door of my mosque an Islamic Bill of Rights for women in a mosque, an Islamic Bill of Rights for women in the bedroom, and 99 precepts for opening hearts, minds, and doors in our Muslim world. And those Bill of Rights, I argued in the case of women in mosques, that we have the right to be in the front rows, to be in lines where we are shoulder to shoulder with men, and we have the right to be prayer leaders. And so this means a fundamental movement from the back of the mosque to the front of the mosque. 
And in the bedroom, we have a right to assert our own choice and from reproductive rights to partners. And we are, um, you know, morality is a separate issue from punishment, and we have the right to be exempt from punishment for those decisions that we make. And so what is the ultimate goal of both of these rights and both of these Bill of Rights? It's to assert our right to be able to live self-determined, self-fully uh, empowered lives. Well, Asra, I wish you the very best of luck. You're, you're quite a courageous woman, and you've got a big struggle ahead of you, and I, I know you know that. Yeah, I do, but I know that just like Mahatma Gandhi won and Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela and all of the great suffragettes of American history, we will persevere and we will succeed. My heart is with you. Our guest today here on Common Thread has been Asra Nomani. Her book is Standing Alone in Mecca, and it's a Harper uh, publication. You can learn more by going to asranomani.com. That's A-S-R-A-N-O-M-A-N-I. And I thank you so much, Asra, for your time. Thank you so much, and peace to everyone. This is WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Please join us again next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.